Writing Matters with Dr. Troy Hicks is a writable podcast. Find more episodes and subscribe on your favorite platforms. And if you want to learn how to grow great writers, check out writable.com. In this episode of Writing Matters, I share a conversation with Shaylin Farnsworth, who is a literacy and technology consultant and offers many insights on the differences between professional development and developing as a professional. She says that she's always been a sharer and is always looking for the next place to share learning with other passionate educators. Welcome to Writing Matters. Today, we're speaking with Shaylin Farnsworth, who's a literacy and technology consultant, uh, certified in all flavors of technology, including Microsoft, Google, and Apple, and is a forever learner. Welcome, Shaylin. Thank you. Thank you for being here today. I'm really excited about our conversation and learning about your work. And I wonder if, as we begin, you might tell us just a little bit about your path in education. Uh, where have you been and, and how have you arrived at where you're at today as a literacy and technology consultant? Interesting question. I think it relates back to when I was younger. Um, my grandmother was a teacher in a one-room schoolhouse. Um, she lived till 100 years old, passed away a few years ago, but she, she was a teacher in Iowa, where I'm from, um, in a one-room schoolhouse, and education has been in, in my veins. Um, I think looking back, I grew up in poverty. Neither of my parents had a college education, um, but they valued education as a way out um, to kind of break that cycle. And so I went on to college, um, received a, a teaching degree, uh, obtained my master's, first one in my, my family to do that. And uh, I worked for a long time as a high school English teacher in the state of Iowa. Our school went one-to-one -one in 2008, so technology uh, infusion has always been a natural part of my teaching. Um, I spent some time at the regional state level supporting districts in K-12 literacy, technology, something called AIW, which is school improvement, professional learning communities, coaching, um, so I have a lot of experience in that. And uh, now I'm, I'm an independent contractor doing some private consulting for different districts and businesses and uh, just loving life, doing my own thing right now. That's pretty amazing. So knowing that any given day, let alone any given week or given month, probably looks very different for you. Uh, what, what might we expect you to be doing with schools and with educators at any, any given time if we were to take a peek at your calendar? <laughs> oh, geez. Um, a lot of things. I think uh, there is a, a huge need for writing, as you know, and writing instruction. Um, when I look back into my own college, my undergrad years, I don't remember explicitly being taught how to teach writing. Um, and I've mm. spoke with a lot of educators, and it wasn't until my master's when I was working on that program that I really learned how to teach writing. I wrote a lot, um, but I, I don't remember ever being taught explicitly how to do that. So I spent a lot of time um, working with districts on writing, um, a lot with technology, inclusive classrooms, differentiation. Um, speaking at conferences, I coach a lot, you know, not only teachers, but coach coaches as well. And just kind of working on that systemic, systemic change and implementation. 
So a variety of things. Yeah. So I wonder if you could tell a little bit more about that then. What, as you're working with individual teachers, as you're working with districts, even as you're working with other literacy coaches, what are some of the, the things that you're working on? What are the types of shifts in pedagogy or changes around language arts instruction, specifically around writing instruction? What, what are some of these key themes or ideas that you're talking with them about in your work? Well, it's a, a wide variety of things. I think that um, with the um, creation of the, the Common Core and um, the standards, it's been one of the first times that writing has played an equal part with reading. So if you look at the standards, um, and I'm talking about Common Core state standards, which a lot of states use, or the, a variety of that, um, you know, there's, there's 10 reading standards, there's 10 writing standards, but if you look at minutes per day spent in those different literacy areas, it's not equal. Um, you know, it's more, uh, writing to learn instead of learning to write. And so they might write, uh, a response or a short answer, um, but actually teaching, uh, writing is, is something that not only teachers struggle with, but also time in the day and how to implement that and mm -hmm. do that systemically. I read something very interesting and I don't remember who it was and maybe you can, can think back in everything you've read that um, writing is sort of like technology. There's a lot of reading curriculas out there, tons, um, very mm -hmm. few writing curriculas. And if you have a teacher who is awesome, in writing and then you don't for the next year and then you do mm -hmm. it's like you losing two years of progress and it's the same thing as technology if you have somebody who uses technology very well in in the teaching and learning and then you don't for a while you lose all of those things so i equate a lot of that parallel a lot of that i don't i can't remember have you ever read that somewhere I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but I certainly agree with you. I mean, I think there there are a much smaller number of, you know, high quality writing curricula that are out there. So I could definitely agree with you on that point. And yeah, it's spotty. Unfortunately, sometimes we have, you know, students who get lucky for multiple years in a row and have teachers that are, you know, highly engaged in a writing process and using mentor texts and inviting peer response and collaboration. And then we have others who are just given assignments and getting a rubric back with some very minimal feedback and not having opportunity to revise and moving on to the next assignment. And so, yeah, I think there's still very much a disparity in what a child might experience through his or her K-12 schooling. And I've seen a, a, a huge need, especially in upper middle school and in high school, of the disciplinary literacy. And so I'm thinking of a school that I worked with and how they were trying to institute more writing throughout the disciplines at the high school level. And that was very interesting. Um, you know, I always call upon uh, Kelly Gallagher saying, you are the best reader and writer in the classroom. And I think that for um, any discipline, especially at the high school level, they might not consider themselves a, a writing teacher or a reading teacher, but they have to remember that they have all of that discipline experience, especially in college. They had to read and they had to write and they understand 
you know, discipline structures and in the way people communicate. And so um, encouraging that in multiple disciplines is, is something else that I've done a lot of work in as well. Yeah. So, and again, going back to your concern a moment ago, you know, about the common core and elevating the writing, I know there are many critics and many things that we could talk about that are wrong with the common core, but I would agree with you that at least in that sense, it elevated this conversation about the teaching of writing and it brought that at least a little bit more to the foreground, if not exactly. I'm curious to hear more then about the disciplinary literacy work that you do and the teachers with whom you work. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Well, like I said, um, uh, I agree with you about uh, Common Core. Um, and I think that people have to, whatever standards that they, that they live by and, and kind of guides their instruction or their planning, they have to have their own personal relationship to it. How I've justified it um, and come to that point in my life is, <clears throat> I think it's more personal as a parent, right? I mm. want my Gracian to get the best teacher in literacy. I don't want, want to, you know, have to go up to the school and request it because I know that they're all placing emphasis in both reading and writing. It's not, oh, this is a reading teacher and this is a writing teacher. And so as a parent, I like it. Um, you know, and, and as a teacher that, that those skills are built upon. And, and if you look at it, there's nothing crazy um, in, in the Common Core or most, you know, most national standards or even state standards. It's, it's nothing ridiculous. It's not asking you to do anything um, outlandish, uh, you know, that would go against any sort of literacy that they're encountering in the world today or, or whatnot. So, um, but what I do find is that disciplinary literacy gets lost often um, because not a lot of time is spent on understanding what is my role in supporting that. And so you default to the, the ELA teacher being the one to teach them how to write or grading their writing. And I think it's just because they don't have the resources, the learning you know, um, uh, the time to work in teams and with each other to talk about what do we value as a staff? What are our beliefs? And how can we support that across all classrooms? I think elementary does a great job um, because they teach multiple subjects and they usually meet as grade level teams and they have that, that conversation always going. Um, but I think when you get upper middle school and high school, it's a little bit more difficult and they forget that um, they know how to write and they know how to read. Um, and they just have to show their process out loud and identify different um, disciplinary structures that kids could pick up on, um, especially at the high school level. If you look at content, I mean, how many differentiated textbooks do you know of? Mm. And so um, being able to not only support kids in reading and writing across the disciplines, which they have to all of a sudden master when they're in high school, right? Um, four different disciplines, five different disciplines throughout the day, but um, teaching them those, those literacy uh, understandings is, is something that I have been doing with staff and, and mm. writing about and speaking about for a while, so. Oh. So as you think about that, and especially in recent years with the next generation science standards and the new C3 framework for social studies, 
have you found the conversations with educators to be shifting a little bit? Have you found it to be more receptive? Have you found those new standards to be something that uh, disciplinary teachers are starting to at least look at, embrace, mm -hmm. reject? I mean, where, where are people at in their, their thinking now about disciplinary literacy, especially in light of these additional new standards like the next gen and the C3? Well, to be honest, I think a lot of it has to uh, uh, fall upon the culture in the building mm. and the um, investment of the administration. When I walk into a building or I'm working with staff, I can immediately tell if this administrator values them as professionals and wants to support them and they come in positive um, or if they feel like this is just another uh, you know, another three-letter acronym in education that we're now jumping on the bandwagon. Um, so it has to do first with administration um, to set that tone. And then I think when they realize, I'm not asking them to teach classic literature in their discipline. You got to keep the main thing the main thing, right? Um, but how can you infuse uh, those good strategies and equipping them um, with a few different strategies to work on those skills that, that all kids need. So for instance, structure. Um, and, and I typically start off with having them all bring in a piece of uh, text mm -hmm. from their discipline. So you have, you know, 10 line math problems or a piece of sheet music or, or whatnot. And so um, you have them share those. And then you have other people not familiar with that discipline mm -hmm tell them what they think it means. So for instance, if I look at a piece of sheet music, I would not be able to tell you if it's for instruments or voices. My children who I've made sure uh, play in the band and get some of that can definitely tell you right away if it's for instruments or voices. And so just um, you know, igniting those light bulbs, having them realize that whatever piece of text or communication their discipline uses, there's definite structures and different ways to approach it, to consume it and create it, um, helps bring those connections together. Mm. So then as you think about other strategies that are especially useful for disciplinary literacy and in working with uh, content area teachers, uh, are there other approaches that you might use for teaching writing that uh, are useful either across disciplines or maybe a very specific strategy that's useful within a discipline. Mm -hmm. um, well, I, I did some social studies work, um, and so I'm familiar with um, kind of the shift in there. And um, I know math relies heavily on inquiry, um, science as well. And I really like the QFT question formulation technique. Um, I don't know mm -hmm. if you're familiar with that one, um, but it helps kids, you know, generate questions instead of given a question. And I remember the student said at one time when he was speaking at, at a conference here in Iowa, he said, so many times the teachers give us problems that already have answers to it. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, my, my favorite motto is, we uh, want to create problem seekers, not just problem solvers, because for so long, we've asked kids to solve problems instead of figure out what problems are. 
that they become conditioned to it. And uh, I had that experience in my own classroom with my AP seniors, um, you know, having them define, figure out, name a question. They couldn't do it. It was very difficult for them as seniors. So It is. Yeah, you've hit on a number of different things here. I personally am familiar with the question formulation technique, but maybe you could take a moment to explain it just a bit more for the listeners. But I certainly agree with you this point about making them problem seekers and that reminds me of a little mantra that I'll sometimes say in, in workshops or webinars with teachers is that, you know, if we are only asking questions that Google, Siri, and Alexa can answer, then we're asking the wrong kinds of questions. And moreover, we're not teaching our students to ask better questions. So I certainly agree. Um, but yeah, I do want to hear more about teachers' professional learning, but maybe you could give us just a quick aside and tell us about the question formulation technique for those who might not be aware of it. So there's lots of, um, you know, directions online, same thing, you could Google it and, and see different directions online, but starting with something that sparks inquiry or thinking, so it could be anything from a short video, it could be a prompt, it could be an, an illustration, um, a picture, a visual, whatever it may be, and then uh, generating or ideating multiple questions, thoughts that surround that spark of inspiration collaboratively um, and so you're you're showing them how to work together collaboratively and and how to brainstorm um, without tossing things out or passing judgment um, you know and then the next step would be looking at those and changing all to questions that were just statements and then you move to open and close questions um, uh, and then formulating you know main questions and then um, support questions so there's different steps that you walk students through um, to help them generate uh, a list of questions to then become um, part of their investigation. Um, mm -hmm. And it's a, great, it's a great technique and it works well. Um, you know, fine thinking, um, for sparking inquiry, to setting kids, um, to launching them into their own investigation. So it's, it's a great one to share and it works well across discipline. And if I recall correctly, it's the Right Question Institute that has put together that work. And yeah, I totally agree. I, what I find most fascinating is that stage where they move back and forth between the open and closed questions, which is one of those, you know, things that seem so obvious. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, we'd never really do that for ourselves to move back and forth between open and closed questions. But when you're with a group and you're forced to do it, that generates even more questions, which I think becomes really powerful. So, well, great. Well, tell us a little bit more about your thoughts on the current state of professional development and professional learning. Uh, I know that you are now, uh, amongst all of the things that you do online, you're also hosting uh, a Twitter chat with our community in Writable, and you've had lots of experiences in schools, online, with individuals, small groups, large groups. Tell us a bit more about um, your thoughts about the, the current state of professional development and professional learning uh, for educators. So I have, I have been lucky to have a lot of experiences and learning and trainings throughout my career. And uh, I met this one woman who spoke to the difference between professional development and developing professionally and how when professionals um, take that lens of developing professionally 
they um, are part of um, professional organizations. They do reading of, of journals and, and uh, experts. Um, they are uh, problem solvers with the group collaboratively, not being, you know, um, spoken to. But there's, there's a difference um, between teaching children, young children and, and adults. Um, and so uh, I've been a part of that for a long time now um, that uh, andragogy, right? And um, how to work with adults and valuing, valuing their knowledge and their voice. Um, but I think one shift that has happened is the opportunity to develop professionally through online communities. And I kind of fell into it. Um, as I said, in 2008, when my school was adopting technology in the classroom, I too quickly learned that I needed to investigate um, and understand what sort of platforms and what sort of communication they were using. And that's where I began, more of uh, wanting to model it positively for my students, right? So they could use social media and platforms and digital communication, not be used by it. Um, and, and so I've always been part of an online community and, and I've always been a, a huge student cheerleader and, and sharer to educators. I'm constantly sharing different things. Um, and so it's just naturally fell into part of my, um, part of my career. Um, I, I ran a one-to-one -one tech chat with um, an Illinois teacher for a long time. Um, Stephen and I do a lot of professional learning on social media sites, Stephen Anderson, speaking of, and um, I started investigating it more, especially with um, the emphasis of gamification in the classroom. And I stumbled upon um, James Paul G and mm -hmm. his infinity spaces. And I said, ah, oh, this makes complete sense. Um, and he talks about what draws people, uh, whether it be adult professionals or, or students or kids, um, into online environments. Um, so like Fortnite, what makes my son obsessed with Fortnite or Minecraft? Um, mm -hmm. and he labels them as affinity spaces, and you have to have so many different uh, components. He talks about, you know, you're both a creator and a consumer. You can app smash. Um, things together and create uh, what you need in there um, uh, because you're behind the screen. Age, gender, um, economics doesn't really play a role in um, status. It's more about what you give and uh, give to the community. And, and, and so you're in and out of those roles. Um, but I think the same is true for not only uh, students, um, but also for us as professionals, we want places where we can um, consume great information, but also create and share great information. We want one that is by choice, um, that you don't have to be there. Um, uh, you go there because you want to, you find value there. And I think that's why you see a lot of people um, using uh, Twitter chats, Facebook groups, Voxer groups, um, TikTok. I've been diving into that, if you can believe it. There's a whole, oh my gosh, there's a whole subculture of educators on TikTok. I was amazed. Um, oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. So I'm digging into that a little bit more, but 
um, understanding those affinity spaces and how they support professional learning um, and drive that learning. I mean, access to experts, researchers, implementing teachers, connecting classrooms. I mean, it's just endless what the type of um, digital spaces there are for educators right now. Blended learning, webinars, podcasts like you're doing right now. So mm-hmm. it, it's an interesting time to not only be in education, but also support those communities. Yeah, that's really amazing. So if you were uh, to be at the beginning of all of this yourself um, and to try to think about how to jump in, what, what would be probably the first space that you might recommend um, others to jump into knowing that there are so many spaces and so many ways and so many resources and so many people to follow on Twitter. Um, is, is there a particular one right now that's really resonating for you? Maybe it is TikTok. <laughs> Maybe it's something else. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily a particular space. Uh, I, I believe two things just from I'm doing this for a long time. First, you don't have to be everywhere at all times. Mm. And secondly, it's very hard for um, someone to want to be part of these communities through a vicarious experience. You have to have that, um, that moment that is your experience to hook you in it. So I think back to when I first joined Twitter, that's, that's my space. I, I love Twitter. I've been on it for a long time. Um, TikTok, I'm interested in. I want to investigate it. I know some people love Instagram. That's a huge one. Um, and, and Pinterest. So there's tons of different platforms. Um, but I think, you know, I think first you have to realize you don't have to be everywhere. Um, there's communities on any of those platforms. So whatever you feel comfortable with. And second, it's very hard, especially if you are a professional, you know, trainer or consultants like we do working with other educators to have them get that buy-in or want to join those platforms through vicarious experiences. So I could tell you all the things that I've done, all the opportunities I've had, traveling to different countries with my kids and, and all these things from, from Twitter alone. But until you have that magic moment, uh, the buy-in is kind of hard. Gotcha. So just making people aware and inviting them in, letting them know that those spaces exist. That makes sense. So as we come to a close here, I've been curious to hear from all my guests this season about the role of writing in your personal and professional life. So I wonder if you might be able to talk just a little bit about that. You know, what is it that uh, you, how do you consider yourself to be as a writer? What role does writing play for you uh, in the work that you do as, in, as well as in your personal life? So who are you as a writer? I have been a blogger for a very long time. Got into it the same, um, same, same way as the previous examples because I wanted to model it for my students. Um, and it has just become not only a place for me to share with other educators, but a reflective spot. And so um, I, I blog a lot. Uh, I also do a lot of micro, micro blogging or writing through, you know, Twitter. Um, I do Instagram. Um, I find myself doing those, those types of writing as well. Um, I also do a lot with, uh, you know, technology and the multimodal writing. Uh, and so how can you communicate messages through different means and modes? And, and so I do a lot of that as well. Um, I write every day. 
the one thing that I, I will say, I, I'm working on a book. Um, it's been in the works for a while, uh, but I'm, I'm having that, um, uh, that all familiar feel that most writers get, the imposter, the imposter syndrome. And so as, I, as I'm working on these things, I kept saying to myself, I'm not an expert. I, I feel like an imposter here. What am I doing? I don't know if you've ever run across that in your writerly life as well, but um, once or twice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that's, that's, that's who I am as a writer. I write every single day. Um, I've always uh, shared my writing. I've written in front of my students. I know how important it is to practice it, but I also, I feel like an imposter, uh, you know, for pushing something that's, I don't know if it's like the hard, you know, hardbound print, print copy. I don't know what it is. What do you, what advice do you have for me, Troy? Oh my. Well, I think I one of the things. That that, yeah. Well, well, I can't even remember who probably told me this the first time, but I've heard it in multiple ways is that, you know, you just have to write your way into it. You know, how do I know what I think until I see what I say? And there, there's those other, you know, old ideas of, oh, for every word that ultimately appears in the book, there are probably 10 words that were in the rough draft and the notes and the, the brainstorming and the outlining that never make it to that final page. So yeah, for me, it's that consistency. It's, it's when I'm involved in a project, you know, okay, I am devoting time to it every single day. And I know personally, my, my blogging is nowhere near what I would want it to be. And, uh, you know, when I look at what really propels me, it's like at those times I get more active and start sharing ideas and getting feedback from people that then leads to the bigger projects. So I'm in one of, I don't know if I'm in the ebb or flow stage of a writing right now, but I too am under contract for a book that um, is due later this spring. And I, I know that, uh, as we record this right now in the fall, um, that's really on the back burner. But um, when, when I've got some different timelines and class schedules and ability to focus on it in January and February, that's when I'll get back in. And I'm sure I'll put some ideas out there and get feedback too. So yeah, I think it's just uh, writing your way into it and, and knowing that you've got to, uh, you know, yes, there's, there's still going to be that imposter feeling, but uh, ultimately you have something valuable to say and, and you write your way toward that. Yeah. Spoken like a, a true professional. A true <laughs> author. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Oh, good. Well, I really appreciate your time today and, and sharing your thoughts and your insights on writing and professional learning. And I'm looking forward to our further collaborations around um, the writable community and um, other opportunities that are ahead. So thank you again for your time. Thank you so much. Writing Matters with Dr. Troy Hicks is a writable podcast. Discover more episodes and subscribe on your favorite streaming platforms or check out filmed episodes on YouTube. And if you want to learn how to grow great writers, check out writable.com.